Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Day bombing is the bold, the aggressive, the offensive thing to do. It is the method and the practice which will put the greatest pressure on Germany, work the greatest havoc to his wartime industry, and the greatest reduction to his air force. We have built up slowly and painfully and learned our job in new theater against a tough enemy. Then we were torn down and shipped away to Africa. Now we have just built back up again and are ready for the job we all cherish, daylight bombing of Germany. Be patient. Give us our chance, and your reward will be ample. Successful day bombing offensive to combine and conspire with the admirable night bombing of the RAF to wreck German industry, transportation, and morale. Soften the Hun for land invasion and the kill. Ladies and gentlemen, that was General Ira Aker there. (laughs) Thanks, General. case for day bombing. (laughs) Thanks, General. Very nice to have you in the studio. I'm sure everyone's absolutely cherishing the prospect of bombing. I mean, Cherish is doing a lot of work there. Bloody hell. So that's, I mean, there we are. That's Ira Aker literally stating the case for for day bombing on the 17th of January, 1943. So... If you listened to our last episode, A, thank you, and B, we hope you, you some of the salient points stuck with you because we, we began with Schweinfurt too, the second raid um, on the ball-bearing plant in Schweinfurt, which was a disaster, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I the, think it's fair to say. I think it's fair yeah, to say. An absolute and then we, and then we charted, didn't we, the kind of development of, of the, 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 the daylight precision bombing doctrine, uh, and we left it just as as FDR had sanctioned fifty thousand aircraft a year, and 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 the tempo of air bombing uh, of air power, and particularly um, strategic bombing campaigns were, were were being sort of ratcheted up in the United States. But welcome to episode two of our of our series on the Mighty Eighth, on the United States Eighth Air Force, based in the United Kingdom um, during its life in the Second World War, and. We should probably just very briefly talk about the kind of the birth of the of the Eighth Air Force and and what's happened and how it comes to be in in Britain. So um, the United States Army Air Corps becomes the United States Army Air Force in June 1941, 
And Tui Spots, who we mentioned earlier on, who was sort of the chief of staff to, to Arnold in the pre-war years, um, arrives in the UK on the 18th of June, 1942, to take command of the newly formed US 8th Air Force. I'm just going to let my dog in. So, yeah, so he's taking command. And, and so there's a plan for, for this. You know, this is this is very much at the heart of, of America's efforts. This is part of Operation Bolero, which is a buildup of U.S. forces in the United Kingdom. Um, starts with with the 34th Red Bulls coming over, the infantry division coming over in January 1942. And this is a sort of natural extension of that, I suppose. Yeah. What spots is... Spots has drawn the conclusion. I mean, it's very interesting the conclusion he draws from the from the German switch after the battle or the end of the Battle of Britain into night bombing. Is he saying that their day bombing's not accurate because they haven't trained for it? He's quite right about that because the German it's a tactical air force, the, the Luftwaffe, strictly speaking. So they haven't really, although there's some argument, there is some argument about this, isn't there? That they haven't really argued for a strategic bombing com- campaign at all. They haven't prepared for one, and so the switch to night bombing is essentially improvised so the bombing's not very accurate even when it's effective it's kind of accidental so his conclusion is so we'll bomb by day because we know what we're doing we've got the kit we've got the mindset and there is there is a sense that this is the american way of doing things too that it suits the american mindset it's sort of honest or something trying to bomb by day isn't it there's no you're not lurking in the shadows and all that it's a kind of clean cut way of doing things and it's an air force is the thing to remember about Although yes. fighters feature later, you know, later in the story. And what's interesting is we've talked about, you said in the last episode, fighters, don't forget fighters are a defensive weapon, weapon, bombers are an offensive weapon. That Actually, the revolutionary thing that comes with fighters is that the Americans use escort fighters as an offensive weapon, don't they? Yes. If that's, that's how it, it develops into that. It's, it develops into that. And that's, that's actually the, the moment of revolution in their thinking is that they, they, they arrive at Completely. that, which is, which is, which is interesting because the, the final sort of pancake they flip over is that one. And that's the, that's the thing that then changes everything. Because I think really, really fascinating. But, but not at off, this stage. But not at this stage. So the fighter side of things, there is a eight fighter command joins in July, but it's all really quite, Small beer. Well, if you look at the makeup of the pla- the planned makeup of of the Eighth Air Force when it comes over to Britain in in and kicks off in you know launched and created in June 1942, the plan at that point is to build up sixteen heavy bombardment groups, each with thirty two bombers and three pursuit groups only of seventy five to eighty fighter planes each. So so each you know each bombardment group just 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 to reiterate has has three squadrons each. And the first units are starting to arrive that summer, but of course, you know, it, it doesn't take long before there's a slight detour. So, so it's worth saying that the the fourth of July, nineteen forty two, this is the first ever Eighth Air Force operation. It is six Boston's twin engine Boston bombers of the fifteenth Bomb Squadron, accompanied by six aircraft of two hundred twenty six Squadron RAF. And the Boston's are borrowed from the RF anyway, and one Boston is lost on the on the first first mission, and, and two two M are missing in action. And the operations that are carried out in July are mainly actually the pursuit planes, the fighter planes of Eighth Fighter Command, with their very sort of small numbers, who are are, are operating alongside RAF Fighter Command on little sweeps over over into Europe and stuff. But but the 17th of August, 1942, this is the first proper mission by B-17s, American B-17s, 18 of them, all from the 97th Bomb Group, uh, which targets ruin in France, and, and there's no losses. 
Um, but but it's really important to stress that you know here we are in the middle of the war in the summer of 1942. Yes, I know, I know. Uh, and you know the, the Eighth Air Force is tiny; it is not mighty at all. It's the tiddly Eighth Air Force at this yeah. point. How are they getting the uh, B-17s to Britain? They're not being they're not being shipped, are they? How are they? What are they doing? They're flying them. They're flying them on a route that goes to sort of Greenland, Iceland. Completely bonkers route to to, to frozen, godforsaken stations where they they yes. come in, they refuel. They maybe have a kip, they have something to eat, and then they fly on. And, and very challenging runs, aren't they, these these delivery runs? Yeah, they really, really are. And, and there's but hundreds of them eventually. I mean, that's all thousands of them eventually. I mean, the amazing thing is, is after after the um, North Africa campaign and the, the sort of freeing up of, of North Africa, following the torch landings in November 1942, then they can do it a different way. They can sort of go down into the Caribbean, then they can cross over to kind of West Africa, and then they can go up to North Africa and then hop over the Bay of Biscay to England that way. So there is a, there is a sort of slightly more, uh, it, it's a longer route, but it's, um, it, it's the weather is sort of slightly kinder to them, to be perfectly honest. But the interesting thing is by the time that Acre writes his case for daylight bombing, uh, which is on the kind of eve of, of, of the Casablanca conference in January, 1943, which is the conference between the British and the American chiefs of staff and Roosevelt and Churchill both attend, you know, they've only flown four, 39 missions or something. No, 29 missions, 29 missions that the, the 8th Bomber Command has flown by that point. So it's, it's really, really piffling. And, and one of the main reasons is because a lot of the bomb groups that have been um, brought over for the 8th Air Force have then been siphoned off to North Africa, not least the 97th Bomb Group, which which operates the first uh, mission over to Rouen. Uh, and of course, you know, it, it's not really surprising because... You think of the very small bar with which the United States Army Air Corps begins begins in 1939, September 1939, just 17,000 strong in the entire Air Corps. You know, you can't just click your fingers and those 50,000 aircraft just appear overnight. It takes time. So actually, the fact that they're operating as an Air Force at all More important than their crews. I mean, the, the, of course. The, the, because the American model of training is intensive and it's lengthy, isn't it? The, these guys are training for months, aren't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and while they have to be selected and weeded because they're looking for certain kinds of pilots for bombers and all this sort of thing. So it's a, a deep and complex training program. So you can't magic up the hundreds of thousands of people you need to, to fly these tens of thousands of bombers. It's just, or, or whatever, whatever it is you're aiming at, it can't just be done overnight. So I think what's striking is that when Acre writes that, this tiny air force, it's flown 29 yes, missions. it's a projection of the future, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, projection it, of the but future. But it's, it's not just a projection of the future. It's him. They're still lobbying. They're still arguing. They're still reassuring the, the government. They're reassuring FDR that he's signed the right checks, that this is going to work. This is the right way to do things. And that our way is the right way. Because after all, the year before, you've had the Butt Report, which is complete, which is basically arguably could have holed Bomber Command's campaign beneath the waterline. But after all, bombing is tied up in the idea that it's appearing to do something. It's a sec you know, it's a second front. It's your only option while you're not actually engaging the Germans on land and all that sort of stuff. And Acre's definitely considering that, isn't it? It's it's a way for America to engage the Germans, you know, take the war to Germany. Because it's otherwise yeah, how yeah, else yeah, do yeah. you how else do you do that with but with a gigantic army that has to burrow its way through Europe, you know, and, and yeah. no one quite wants to commit to that yet. To extend that point, I think it's just interesting that this is also the same point where you have Americans lobbying for an overlord-style operation that year as well, which they obviously couldn't. Th these are statements of ambition, aren't they? Yes, and statements of intent. Absolutely. Well, you know, because you can always you can always roll back from 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 something, but you can't 
you know, if you don't go, you know, if you don't have these lofty aims in the first place, it's very hard to sort of keep your focus. So, I, I, you know, exactly. I think that's, that's entirely, entirely justified and, and completely understandable. But I think it's, it's interesting. So, so Spots is the is the first commander of the uh, of the eighth, but he then gets comes over to command strategic air forces in the Mediterranean following Torch. So he's off, and and, and Acre is the obvious person to take over from him as commander in chief of of the eighth air force, and does so in December nineteen forty three. But one of the reasons why they fit, you know, it's interesting when you look at German bombers like the Heinkel. 11 and the Dornier 17 and stuff and you look at these which are ni- mid-1930s bombers and they're looking tired and kind of out of date by the start of the war the interesting thing about the B-17 is it absolutely isn't and the B- B-24 consolidated B-24 with its tricycle um, undercarriage rather than it's uh, rather than being a tail dragger is even more so a sort of leap into the future and and Part of the point is that, you know, they've got four engines, not two. So they're more robust. They're tougher. The airframes are tougher. So they can take that. It is it is understood that they can take punishment as well as giving punishment with their 13 um, machine guns. And, and this is why it's worth just mentioning a rabbit hole here, um, which actually takes us out of the eighth. But because this, this involves a, a, a B-17 of the 97 bomb group, which is one of the one of the pioneers, one of the originals of the 8th Air Force, which comes over and flies on that that um, mission to Rouen on the 17th of August 1942. But by the start of 1943, when Acre is writing his case for daylight bombing, is in the Mediterranean, is in is operating out of Algeria, and on the the first of February 1943, there is one particular. B-17 called the All-American, which is part of the 414th Bomb Squadron, part of the 97th Bomb Group. And the bombardier is a chap called Lieutenant Ralph or Lieutenant Ralph Burbridge, who some years ago I spoke to at some great length about this particular mission on the 1st of February 1943. He was from Missouri. He joined the USAAF just after, just before rather, Pearl Harbor, rides in the UK in 1942. He's one of those who takes part in that first ever mission to ruin on the 17th of August. And he's got 16 missions under his belt by the time he's posted to Algeria. So, you know, he's, he's well on the way to achieving that magical 25 that they have to do before they can go home. But anyway, they take off from Biskra in Algeria at 10.50 a.m. on the 1st of February to attack Bizerta, which at that point is in German hands, which is just in the port north of north of Tunis um, in Tunisia. Uh, and at 1.40 p.m., they reach the Lac de Bizerta uh, and they hit the port okay and then they're attacked by 109s. And suddenly there's an, a 109 is attacking from 12 o'clock high straight for them. Uh, Major Coulter, who's the squadron commander, his ship is hit and they plunge, plunges to the ground and that's that. Uh, and the second 109 then makes for the All-American. And, and the pilot, Lieutenant um, Ken Briggs, um, takes evasive action and the 109 passes, and they all they all have a massive shoot. You know, all the machine guns are hammering away at it, and then they feel this slight jolt in the plane. <laughs> Nothing more than that, just a slight jolt. And the top turret calls out, "Sir, we've received some damage in the tail section. I think you should have a look." And the, and the fort <laughs> is still flying okay, but the trim's not working. So Briggs hands over the over to Engel, who's the co-pilot, and goes back. And he cannot believe what he sees because the fuselage has been three quarters of the way sliced off. I and mean, part it- of the ME one hundred and nine's wing is still embedded. You see, the thing is, uh, and we will post these pictures. There are there are photographs of this, which are, which are absolutely incredible. The one on the ground, you I can cannot understand. believe it. Well, the one on the ground, I can understand. I mean, I can't believe it, but I can understand it. The one of them in the in the air, someone on another fortress had a camera, or someone. Yeah, well, I guess so. Or whatever, or whenever it was coming home, they sent a you know sent a lightning up or something to have a look. You, you know what I mean? But you've got to get a picture of this. But anyway, the, the amazing thing is, they make it back. 
Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and they land, and even when it lands, it doesn't come to pieces. Yeah, uh, and and it makes absolutely it makes the headlines in the stars and stripes. The unkindest cut of all, but bomber beats the rap. You know, I mean, it, it it's just amazing. But in a way, this just reinforces the bomber men's view that you know that these fortresses they've got this great machine that can do that can take it that can take the hit. But anyway, back to Acre's case for daylight bombing because it's January 1943 it is the Casablanca conference and he's one of the men who is invited to come and attend this and do do his bit. Uh, you know, Tui Spatz is there to fight the US corner but so is Acre. And unlike most US senior commanders, Acre had come really, really practiced. <laughs> because because yeah. famously, the American chiefs of staff are, are caught short by the British, who've absolutely ambushed, yeah. ambushed them in terms of, of strategic plans and don't have an answer for it. But Acre is not one of those. You know, he's because he's clever, because he's smart. He's actually, I forgot to mention in the last episode, he's also done a, he's done a course in, um, in, in journalism. So, right. you know, he, he, so he can write. He, he's he good can write this stuff. He can write. He can write. He can write exactly. He knows how to present a case, so he does this case for daylight for, for day bombing, and he, and he and he points out, look, if we do this, um, and the RAF continue to bomb by night, then we can do round the clock bombing and give the Germans no rest, and that means that you know they can't have flat gunners working twenty four hours a day, or they can, but that means they're going to have to halve their number. So you know that's an advantage. It prevents putting excess strain on the British airspace and comms. Inarguable. It would be more accurate because it's daylight and the, the British all sort of, you know, scratching their chins and they're rubbing their chins sort of um, sagely yeah, at this point yeah, because yeah, they I know that, so. you know, yeah. well, maybe over El Paso, old chum, but um, yes. try doing that over Schweinfurt. Yeah. Uh, and, and he also points out the daylight bombing, and this is almost, I would say, the most Im- the, the key argument of all, would force the Luftwaffe back to the Reich where enemy day fighter force would be compelled to take to the sky to defend the airspace because this is a problem that the RF have had up until this point is, is they go over and do these these fighter sweeps over western france and and you know the luftwaffe don't play ball or very rarely play ball um and when they're when they're bombing at night you know fighters don't come into it but but what you're trying to do ultimately for for the operation overlord the, the, as it will become the cross-channel invasion is you need to clear that air, airspace we'll go on to that later but jim if you if when you when you summarize it like that who does it sound like it's tailored to convince winston churchill <laughs> Is the answer. Yes, and, and it does convince him. And it does him. It does. And it's, this shows, uh, you know, Acre quite clearly has assessed, you know, the target and has done some precision bombing on it. Churchill, anything where you can go to Winston Churchill and say, give the germ, to give the Hun no rest. That's really marvellous stuff. He, yeah. it, it's, it's as if it's... it's Set as if, Europe ablaze. Exactly. Nazis. It, it, yeah. it'll put less. It'll put, it'll put less strain on British airspace, sir. It, 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 it's... And there's also that idea of it being more accurate, because at this time, it's only at the very end of the war where Churchill suddenly sort of starts to blanch about the strategic bombing campaign, isn't it? But the idea that it's more accurate has got to appeal on, on some level. But this, And also the idea that you destroy the Luftwaffe, force the Luftwaffe to battle and all this sort of stuff. You can see that Acre has really thought carefully about the fact he's got to get this by Churchill. And the because, words he's using. And the words the he's using. The language he's using. Exactly, the language he's using. And because... Aiken, his time in Britain in, in 42, has experienced quite a lot of pressure from the British to join the night bombing campaign. I mean, quite a lot of pressure, hasn't he? He's been told, you should just you throw, throw your lot in with us. It doesn't, daylight is just, and the, and the British are saying, daylight's too dangerous. The risks don't, the risks, the trade-off of the risks against the accuracy it's just not there. Accuracy is impossible anyway, as the Butt Report proves. But, but also, you know that Harris, who is the commander-in-chief of the yeah, yeah. former command uh, and has been in post since February 1942 and has spent spent the first 
year of his command kind of sort of building up strength and, and building up navigational aids before his planned all-out assault um, of, of strategic air campaign against Germany, which which he's planning to begin at the beginning of March 1943. You know, he's thinking, fine, whatever. Try it, and then you'll come back to our way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's, very much, that's very much his attitude, yeah. He, he's very censorious, and, yeah. and he just sits there just thinking, Dream on. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to argue with you. You crack on. You do whatever you want. But you'll you'll come back to my way of thinking in in, in very quick order. Acker sits Churchill down personally, doesn't he, and takes him through this, doesn't he? So it's not just a, a staff conference presentation. He goes and sees Churchill personally. He sits him down and pitches it to him. Combined bomber offensive is the is yes. the is and, the and, and compelling German day fighters to attack. That's that. That's into the air. That's the thing. Although at this stage, it, it, it has to be said that although fighter groups are are part of the of the eighth, yeah. it is absolutely still considered that these mass formations on their it's own will be. Def- it's a bomber force will be defended enough just by virtue of their thirteen fifty caliber machine guns per per bomber, uh, and and it's all going to be fine. Um, and so there's a sort of you know a potential misappreciation of that. So, so subsequent to the the Casablanca conference, a directive is issued demanding. The progressive destruction and dislocation of the German military, industrial, and economic system, and the undermining of the morale of the German people to a point where their capacity for armed resistance is fatally weakened. Now we've said this one, but that we've 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 come out of this line before. I think when we were doing Gamora. But the interesting thing is, is that is applied to both the United States Army Air Force and the RAF, so Bomber Command and the Eighth Air Force, are given carte blanche to, for, for all-out strategic bombing, but on their own terms. It's very vague. It's very vague. So do, do it your own way. Do it your own way. Because after all, the, uh, undermining a morale it becomes an enormous point of argument, had been a point of argument before the war among, among the people in America arguing about bombing. And, beca- you know, because if you're just doing it to undermine people's morale, how do you even measure that? You know, whereas you can, you can take a photograph of a smashed up factory. You can take a photograph of a d- smashed up oil refinery. You can't take a photograph of undermined morale. There's no way of... There's no way of putting it in a blue book like Harris has. These enormous, these enormous binders with every, basically everywhere in Germany assessed as a military target. It's, poten- it's potential as a military target weighed up. It's impossible to assess. But it's in the mix there because the whole point of this directive is that it's vague. Progressive destruction, so not immediate. Dislocation, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, Military, industrial, economics, economic system could mean literally anything because you could argue that the roundabout at the end of yeah. the end of the road on from mine is part of the economic system because lorries have to drive through it. And it basically means you go away and you try, but we are, that's what strategic bombing is from now on. Bomber Command doing its thing, the US Army Air Force doing its thing. There's that, that, yeah. There isn't, we will attack oil, you will attack ball bearings. You do cities, we do whatever. Those arguments are removed from this. So in a strange way, it's a brilliant directive because it tells everyone what to do without telling them what to do. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is, is because Aker has, has spoken to Churchill and because he has got, you know, the Americans have got the green light for continuing daylight, inverted commas, precision bombing. This gives Aker, who is now commander-in-chief of the 8th Air Force, back, in, back at, at Pine Tree, at, at High Wycombe, he can, Wickham Abbey, rather, you know, he can now develop this idea and develop his force. So, so the first six months of 1943 for the Eighth Air Force are very much a, a, a half year of development. This is this is growth. This is building up in much the same way that that 
Harris has been building up his own force, a bomber, com- a, a bomber command in 1942. And it's interesting that, you, you know, the 8th Air Force begins life with seven men and absolutely no aircraft whatsoever in February 1942. Um, but by June 1943, it's got four wings, 18th bomb groups, four fighter groups, six bomb groups had arrived in the spring. But of course, you know, all this takes time. You know, it is growing. It is growing. And, and, and certainly by June, it's capable of putting out kind of, you know, 200, 250 bombers. But that's still nothing like enough. But it is it is a force that is on the is on the on the rise. Well, because, again, you fall into this you fall into this problem they have pre-war, which you've got this idea. But there's an experience vacuum. So you've got to get these crews experienced. You've got to try some of this stuff out. But a big part of the way, a big part of your bomber philosophy is that you do it by overwhelming the enemy with a giant bomber formation. You haven't got a giant bomber formation. Yeah. So let's go to the marshalling yards in Rouen. Let's let's go yeah, to France. Exactly. Let's do, so let's chip, do milk chip. runs in Holland or whatever. And and just sort of test the water a little bit. And that, and that's fine. So so you know, Eighth Air Force is doing operations in the first half of nineteen forty three. But you know, one has to kind of make it absolutely clear that these are pretty small scale in the big scheme of things you know there are occasional ones into in, into the Ruhr or up to sort of Bremen and Wilhelmshaven and all this kind of stuff but for the most part these are are what would later be called a, a, a milk run but at the same time Acre is also thinking really hard about how this all looks once he's got his force at a kind of certain strength you know what, what will they be able to achieve what will they do and what he comes up with which is a development of his case for daylight bombing encouraged by what by his conversations with Churchill and others at the Casablanca conference which is the combined bomber offensive the CBO and, and this is approved by the British Air Staff but but it, because it's his and it's so obviously his it becomes known as the Acre plan and, and this acknowledges that Luftwaffe fighter strength is growing um, and thus the success of bombing Germany is dependent on destroying German fighter strength and Acre refers to the immediate objective as destroying German fighter strength and what he means by immediate is intermediate rather is immediate yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, he says that the german fighter force is taking a toll of our forces both by day and by night not only in terms of combat losses but more especially in terms of reduced tactical effectiveness if the german fighters are materially increased in number it is quite conceivable that they could make our daylight bombing unprofitable and perhaps our night bombing too so he's saying we need to do something about fight fighter strength Right now, because which is really really interesting, isn't it? Because this is a that's a mile off from the bomber will always get through. Our bombers have sufficient defensive firepower to do anything they possibly need to. Yes, and it, and it's also it's not that it's not that Acres not looking at what is happening in North Africa. And, you know what happens to the All American is it's attacked by by Messerschmitts. One of them shot down. One of them makes it home, but with with three quarters of its fuselage sliced in half. Yeah. Okay. So 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 you know the, the, you, you can take a number of lessons from that. You can you can say, well, you know, it's great that the B seventeen is so robust, but you can also say, hmm, fighter planes they are getting through here. <laughs> um, yeah. So so uh, literally, and, you know, and, and I. Acre is not an idiot, so he he's sort of starting to get that. But he's also, but he's also, I mean, he's he's playing the cards he's been dealt by by previous policy and procurement, isn't he? I mean, he can't, he like you said, he can't magic up a fighter wing to, to solve the problem, and he hasn't got a long range fighter either, because critically, that's an idea that people have, have simply said is impossible, or, or just not 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 thought about. They just haven't applied themselves in the same way they have to a kind of bomb site or something. Well, it's interesting because they they've done drop, they do do drop tank experiments in the nineteen twenties and basically go, yeah, yeah, they work. Oh, well, we're not going to need them. Whatever. We're not going to need them because of the, the fighter isn't a threat to our bomber force anyway. So 
the ideas are that the ideas are there, but they haven't been seized upon. But what you see in this this crucial six months, and you have to see in the Eighth Air Force, what you're talking about is you are talking about the evolution of of American strategic bombing of Germany. So the evolution of that strategy is developed by Acre in this first six months of 1942. So it's a really, really formative moment in the history of American air power, but more specifically the history of the United States Eighth Air Force. And what he's starting to realize is that actually that intermediate target, that immediate target, the first priority is the German aircraft industry and indeed the Luftwaffe. So what he starts to envisage is the gradual destruction of the Luftwaffe in terms of targeting airframe, aero engine component, ball bearing plants, and, and hammering these repeatedly, whilst at the same time drawing enemy fighters into the air. Yeah. That's the strategy. So he says, you know, it is emphasized that the reduction of the German fighter force is essential to our progression to the attack of other sources of the enemy war potential, and any delay in its prosecution will make the task progressively more difficult. So what he's saying is we need to knock the Luftwaffe on the head now, then without the Luftwaffe, which is our most dangerous, you know, the, fight, the German fighters as a day bomber, that is our most dangerous enemy rather than flak rather than an anti-aircraft gun, and he's absolutely correct because uh, a fighter pass has has a kind of one in five chance of hitting, whereas uh, an anti-aircraft shell has a has a 0.002% chance of hitting. So he's absolutely bang on on that. But does he have the means? It's the simple question, Nick. Well, well what you're, no, absolutely. And this is, this is the point because what you're seeing is, ah, now we're actually in the war. We can start to practically test the theories of the 1930s. And while us, our ultimate tenet, i.e., bombing is what it's all about is true what is clearly where we've undercooked is on the fighter escort bit and how do we overcome that well how we will ever be able to bomb the way we intend to bomb you know that we've got to get over that fence perhaps and also we've got to we've got to do some testing here because we've got to see whether these mass formations of bombers once you've got a formation of 300 bombers in tight boxes in tight closed convoy formation will that be enough to kind of get through to these these targets where the i mean because that's the interesting thing is is that that very conveniently, the Ruhr industrial heartland is in the west of Germany, which makes it geographically, you know, very straightforward for bombers flying out of East Anglia or, or, or Lincolnshire to attack it. Fly across but, Holland, you're there, basically. Yeah, and you're there. It's, it's really straightforward. The problem with the aircraft industry is most of it is is deep into the Reich, and a lot of it is in the southern part of the Reich, you know, around sort of Munich. Bavaria um, and engineering. Schweinfer, Bavaria, yeah, and in, even into Austria, you know, sort of Wiener Neustadt and all the rest of it. Bomber command, Harris is basically going, yeah, 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 that sounds great in principle, but we, don't worry, we're going to carry on doing our thing because he's he's basically resorting to the – He's resorting to the to the Casablanca directive, isn't he? Where he's going, yeah, yeah, you know, we're by any means possible, each to his own. Uh, thanks very much. I, I mean, I'm sure you're right, but good luck again, because he's had Harris's attitude is just, I got to make this thing work. I got to protect my crews. I, I, I'm not interested in bright ideas, basically. And he also just doesn't believe that bomber formations, even if they've got you know mass numbers of fifty caliber machine guns, he just doesn't think they're going to be able to protect themselves. So he thinks the whole plan is entirely flawed. He's he is literally just sitting back, waiting for the Eighth Air Force to sort of tow his his way of thinking. But having said that, that you know, Acre comes up with this plan, which is you know this is the strategy that we should have. It should absolutely focus on destroying the Luftwaffe and the German aircraft industry as a primary target until we can. And when we've done that, then we can think of other targets. And this is handed over to Harris to, to tweak. And he goes, yeah, yeah, absolutely fine, whatever, as long as I can con- <laughs> retain con- control over what targets I choose. And so he goes, fine, you crack on. 
So, so this is signed off by the combined chiefs of staff. It's worth noting, isn't it? Acre gets along with everyone. It's very charming, isn't he? So, so there's a big. No, Harris likes him, and, and Harris yeah. likes him. They re- really like. Re- they really get on, don't they? And they and they they weekend together and stuff. And and he gets on. He he can handle Portal really well, and he's great. Which he's so. I think what's really interesting is often when people talk about um you know allied strategy, they look for butting heads, don't they? But this is a situation where actually these there all these people who are disagreeing, but they're getting along getting along terribly well. Actually, Acre Acre is incredibly good at charming everyone and being being friendly and and all that, isn't it? So that this is there are disagreements here, and they're big disagreements. They're important disagreements, but that no one's falling out with anyone, are they? Harris is like, well, you do your thing, chum. Um, and he's, it's not the sort of more um, acerbic Harris that, who people maybe think of. He's signing his memo going, no, that ain't that ain't happening for us. You know, good luck. I mean, if, when Acre arrives in the UK, Harris is very keen on encouraging him to night bomb and pick his brains and all this sort of stuff. And there is there is a frank exchange of information. So this isn't this isn't a thing that's happening into sort of completely separate bubbles, is it? Which I think is really really interesting. It's not the it's not an allies at war thing. This. Oh, absolutely not at all. You know, Harris is just saying, saying, you know, good luck with it. But, uh, but you know, we've got our way, and this this works for us. You know, you crack on and and absolutely get the benefits of round the clock bombing. I get get all that, and I understand the the benefits of doing this. You know, I, I mean, I I wish you all the best. I just don't think it's going to work. But you know, happy to be proved wrong. But but the the result of this, yeah, is Operation Point Blank. Yeah, and Operation Point Blank is a combined bomber offensive operation. So it is, It is. you know, Bomber Command is signing up to it, but it is going to be led by the 8th Air Force um, and subsequently the 15th Air Force in Italy in, in, in future months. And that is agreed and signed off on the 10th of June, 1943. And this is the moment where suddenly 8th Air Force has a raison d'etre. That it yeah. now, it, it, it's built up some strength. It's got a, it's got a mission. And the mission is the destruction of the Luftwaffe and the German yeah. Air Force. This this is what it's all about. And there is another incentive for this and for the signing off of Point Blank because it has been agreed in the month before, in May 1943, at the Trident Conference between the British and the Americans in Washington that Operation Overlord is going to be the priority um, yeah, objective. Yeah. And Operation Overlord, as we all know, is a cross-channel invasion, which at this point in 1943 is scheduled for the 1st of May 1944. Yeah. And and for that to happen, an absolutely non-negotiable prerequisite is clearing of the airspace of Northwest Europe. And the reason you need to do this is because, and it's worth just saying this very quickly before we come to the break, is because the moment you land in Normandy, the cat is out of the bag, and then it's a race for who can build up men and material quickest into the bridgehead. Will it be the be the Allies who've got to get across the Channel in shipping, or will it be the Germans who've already got a foot on the you know are already on the continent? So the way you slow that down is by hampering the Germans' ability to get to Normandy. And you do that by destroying bridges, marshalling yards, railway lines, their lines of communication. And you can only do that by very, very accurate, low-level bombing in sort of medium bombers, twin-engine bombers. And you can only do that if you've got command of the airspace. You can't do that if you've got Messerschmitt 109s and Focke-Wulf 190s hovering over you. So you absolutely have to clear the airspace before you can do the invasion. So the matter of German fighters, which Acre has been stressing and fighter trying to do something about German fighter dominance, is now not just central to his bombing strategy, but actually central to the entire direction of Allied strategy for the following year. Against Nazi Germany, correct. Uh, exactly. And so exactly. everything is on them. And, and this is why what they're doing and why Point Blank is so absolutely key. It is, it is almost the key strategy in 1943 for the Allies for the rest of the war. I mean, you know, up until D-Day, certainly. You know, so so 
a huge amount is resting on the shoulders of this still very fledgling air force as it is in the summer of 1943. So we will take a break and then we'll come back and see, well, who they are, what they are, and how that task might pan out in 1943. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk and our US My 8th Air Force, the Mighty 8th series that we're doing for you. And in the first half, we, we, we talked, we've talked strategy. We've talked the exigencies of developing allied strategy. Ira Aker's ability to handle Churchill, or was it Churchill's ability to handle Ira Aker, of course? Wow, this, yes, yes, yes. It, Which one first? Is it, well, Chicken his advisors, 
because his advisors saw him coming as well as a Churchill's advisor saw Aker coming. So there's a there's a you know swings and roundabouts. But I thought I thought in the second half we'd focus on focus on one of the experiences of one of the bomb groups, and this of course is a hundredth bomb group, which is the it has to be said the focus of Masters of the Air. John Orloff's brilliant script based on the um, Donald Miller. Um, book of the same title, uh, which is a brilliant book. It has to be said. It's a really, it's a, it's a great book. Anyone, everyone should read it. It's, it's, it's terrific. Although that again, that's that's about the entire air force rather than hundredth uh, bomber group. So yes, but the hundredth, hundredth BG is very much his his focus, isn't it? It's his, uh, it's like his his, his daddy. Yes, it's his touchstone. It? It's the one he keeps coming back to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so yeah. they they're based in Thorpe Abbotts, but they come from Keeney in the Nebraska. Yep, arrive on the 9th of June, nineteen forty three. So they arrived the day before, the day before Point Blank is signed off. Right. So they, they, they couldn't be any more sort of tied to it and its fortunes <laughs> and on message. Yeah, and and, and they're, they're, they're transposed, essentially, en masse, aren't they? After seven months of setting up training, sort of plonked in England. It is amazing. You know, whether it be the 82nd Airborne or 101st or these infantry divisions or whatever, which are sort of, you know, created. These formations are created whole. You know, so they they recruit the staff, they recruit the men, then they start training guys in, and and they're allocated, and you build up and build up, and you've got several months of all operating together, training together. You've got your aircraft, then you're good to go, and you and you all fly over on mass, and here you are. Suddenly, you've got kind of you know 40, 40 aircraft and forty crews, and it's in Norfolk, isn't it? Just up the road from Dis. Yes, it's right on the Norfolk Suffolk border. The, the, it's it's literally you know a, half a mile, and you're in Suffolk. Yeah, it's lovely. It's a beautiful little village. It's got a sort of gorgeous little sort of flint church, and and it's a sort of sleepy little place. And the and the airfield is north of the village. Um, there's some woods, and a lot of the sort of Quonset huts where the men were kind of housed um, uh, were in those in those woods. And there's you can see the remains of them, sort of brick walls and little, you know, the outline of where they all were in these woods. And then north of the woods is this huge kind of sort of you know where the airfield once was. You can still see the. You can still see the hard standing, and on the far side, on the north, is is, is where the the control tower is, uh, and you know it's it's like it's like so many of these places in Norfolk, these these airfields which were sort of springing up all over the place. You know, it's home to a suddenly fa- you know three thousand uh, young Americans on the top of a village, which is home to kind of you know four hundred people. Yeah, and and obviously has a radical effect on the on the neighbourhood. Yeah, yeah, it's got two T two hangars, which are the sort of standard, you know, the classic uh, uh, hangar. Fifty two hard standings built, um, massive offices, office buildings, maintenance sheds, and it's given the number Station One Three Nine, built by the British, incidentally. Yeah, but but there's an engineering company or a hardcore company or someone providing concrete who's making a making a tiny oh, packet. It's, it's all it's all it's all McAlpine and Wimpy. It's it's, yeah. it's, all, it's all those it's all those names that are still there to this day. Incredible. They're the, they're the people doing it all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so 100th Bomber Group, they're part of the 13th Combat Wing alongside 309th Bomber Group and 95th Bomber Group. Are you, you, are you keep, are keeping track, everyone? So, the, <laughs> I mean, the, I, what I do love about the Americans is all big numbers. It's all hundredths, 390ths, 95ths. You know, you're immediately in, you're immediately into three figure numbers for formations. Like, there's no not going to muck not going to muck about with a first and second. You know, like we're, we're straight up to the hundredth. So they they've arrived in on the 9th of June and they fly their first combat mission, basically two weeks later. So the the original numbers that come over, I think it's 36 crews or or, or 40 crews that come over, and these are known as the originals coming over on on the 9th of June, 1943. And it's part of the 13th Combat Wing alongside the 390th and the 95th Bomb Group. So these guys are very often kind of sort of operating together. And 
which which of these these bomb groups ends up at the bottom and the back is rather depends on you know the, the results of who gets gets off best and worst on any particular mission but anyway they flew their first mission on the 25th of june 1943 um just three losses in the 349th bomb squadron and and it's and it's worth just mentioning two of the originals who are major gail buck cleveland and major john egan and egan had reached england in back in march 1943 and then joins the the hunter upon its arrival as the operations officer and then becomes the commanding officer of the 418th bomb squadron egan short skinny 27 years old so still pretty damn young yeah, yeah. You say young, I say old. I mean, for these for these people, he's an old timer, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Young enough for me. I mean, it, I just think how when I was twenty seven, how utterly unsuited I'd have been to any of this. Oh my god! But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But compared to them, he's he's ancient, isn't he? Essentially, and then Cleveland's twenty four years old, and given command of three hundred fifty bomber squadron in uh, July forty two. I mean, I, I just think again, we often we, we do we do talk about this a fair bit. Uh, or we have over the years, how young these people are and the responsibility they have and how obviously they've, the, you know, the Air Force can recognise who's going to, who, who it wants to give the responsibility to and then people rise to it. I think it's it's just absolutely, just that responsibility alone before you fly into combat, just extraordinary. All those people looking to you for decision and example and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So, so much resting on your shoulders. I remember talking to Billy Drake, the legendary fighter pilot in the RAF, who, who commanded, you know, he, he was shot down over France in Hurricane 1940, later commanded the 112 Shark Squadron, Kitty Hawks in, in North Africa. And he said, you have no idea how much responsibility you have as a kind of sort of 23-year-old as a squadron commander. He, he said, you know, it's extraordinary. You know, you were just left to, to run the show as you wanted. And he said, said, you know, if I didn't think someone was up to it, I'd just fire them. I'd just get rid of the pilot. You know. <laughs> He said, said, you know, he said that may sound really tough, but he said, you know, it's a, it's a deadly business. You've got to be tough. You're sparing them on, in one way, aren't you? Of course. But that kind of sort of that, 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 that thought really kind of applies to, to bomb groups and bomb squadrons as well. Anyway, the thing about Cleveland and Egan is, is that they're, um, they've been mates since joining the Air Corps together at Randolph Field in Texas back in 1940. So they're really, really tight. Best, best of mates. And they're now in the same bomb group together. They're both living at Fort Abbott's. You know, they're super tight. And there is this sense, I think, with with the hundred bomb group, these originals, that, that that they are a band of brothers. You know that these are guys who've been created together in Keeney in Nebraska. They've they've lived and drunk and laughed and hurled and cried and all that kind of stuff together. And here they all are on this big adventure. But they're going first, so that that's the thing that really. And they're the pioneers. You know, they're they're, they're testing it. They're testing they're testing the theories from the nineteen thirties, the evolving theories of men like Ira Aker commander-in-chief of, of 8th Air Force, and, and they're the guinea pigs in many ways. But they're excited by this, you know, they're, 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 they're cherishing the, the bombing missions. You know, that's still very much the forefront in, that Aker was saying in January 1943. They're still thinking that in June 1943, you know, six months further on. You know, the, the, these guys are pumped. They're up for it. They, they think they're going to be the heroes that are going to change the way warfare's fought. And yes, it's not without its dangers, but but it's an awfully big adventure. No one's sitting there thinking they're all going to get shot down in droves. That is just not on their radar at all. No, not yet. Anyway, I mean, they're, they're, no, I mean I'm talking about June 1943. Yeah, I know. And they're, they're and they're flying this sci-fi superplane that can that can drop a bomb in a pickle barrel that flies high and fast, relatively speaking. They're all incredibly well trained. I mean, they've all got hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours on the thing. And they all they all know what they're doing. But I mean, in fine weather in North Africa. Yes, of, yes, of course. No, North America, yeah. rather. Yes, of course. Oh, it's very interesting because in because in Don in Don Miller's Mighty Eighth book, he says, you know, 
when faced with the most unusual weather, weather system in the world. And you sort of think, well, you say that. Maybe your weather system over America is unusual. Try, try going to kind of the Amazon. Well, Japan, you know, because they run into all those stratospheric problems in Japan with the B-29 that they don't anticipate later in the war. You know, like, who are you calling unusual, mate? Is the, is the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> try know, going to the Barents Sea. Exactly. Our weather's normal. Try going to Bear right? Island, for goodness sake. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But so Cleveland's first mission is to, it's to Bremen. That's not an easy one, to be fair. That's not easy. And that's 25th of June, 1943. But but by by the seventeenth of August, he's he's got ten under the bag in the bag, and and the eleventh is the Schweinfurt Regensburg grade of the seventeenth of August, nineteen forty three. Now Regensburg is a where they make Messerschmitt one hundred nines, right? It is. So yep. why why wouldn't you attack it? Acres determination to to attack fighter fight production. When you put it like that, why wouldn't you do it? Well, this is Operation Point Blank, isn't it? You know, it's exactly. You're you're getting on with what you've got to get on with. And the 100th, they're targeting Regensburg. They're positioned in what's called the coffin corner, so the last and lowest group in the bomber formation. So essentially, you're the stragglers, aren't you, effectively? Yeah. And they're already, by by this stage, they're starting to sort of, you know, this is... So the Schreinfeld-Regensburg raid is the first big, deep penetration of the Reich that they've done. But even so, you know, they've, they've been taking hits and... No one is anticipating this to be particularly easy, but they have massed 315 aircraft bombers for this particular operation, which is the largest to date. Um, and, and, you know, that's a big deal. It's a long way. And at the briefings, people say things like, what idiot at 8th Air Force headquarters dreamed this one up? So there's a there's a fair deal of, um, by now, they've an understanding of what the Luftwaffe are capable of. And of course, the Luftwaffe are adapting and have, have come up with Galland, Adolf Galland has come up with this head-on technique, hasn't he? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, and, and, which is which has been developed this summer. This is the summer of 1943 when it happens. The Fortress only has one forward-facing machine gun, doesn't it? It's not the bomb aimer, is it? Is it the flight engineer? Um, t- no, no, it's, bomb, it's bombardier. It's it bombardier the, it's, so, yeah. so the bombardier takes it on when he's not being a bombardier, and it's only a 30 cal, isn't it? So there's clearly a question about how well defended the, the Fortress is um, from the front. And I remember uh, Mackie Steinhoff's book where he talks about uh, Galland coming down to see them in Sicily and saying, right, this is what you do with the, with the fortresses. You fly straight at them. And, he's, and Steinhoff's going, Jesus Christ, I mean, who is he to tell us this? But actually, Galland's right. That is the, they call them Boeings. Well, he is that stage. They soon, they soon get rid of the 30 cows and put 50 cows in. But That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they yeah, call yeah. Them, but they call them Boeings, don't they? Um, the, yeah. the Germans. And that's the way you deal with a Boeing. As, you, as we said in the last episode, you fly, you fly straight at it. So the hundredth fly the Regensburg raid, and the casualties on that are appalling, aren't they? Yes, yeah, and it's worth worth just sort of talking through through Cleveland's mission. So you know their, their their ship is being absolutely shredded by by bullets and flak, and you know peppering it the whole thing, um, and and they're they're actually justified in bailing out. And his co pilot, Captain Richard Carey, was all set to do so. But by this time, is the B seventeen that that Cleveland is piloting is is suffering structural damage, partial loss of control, there's fire in the air, and and serious injuries to some of the crew. And fresh waves of fighters are, are, are attacking them. But over the intercom, Cleveland calmly insists that they, they press on. And, and Cleveland gets a, a, a distinguished service cross for this. And the story gets written up in the Saturday Evening Post by Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Lay Jr., who's a guy who later writes 12 O'Clock High. And it very much sort of put, puts 100 Bomb Group on the fore. But they do, Cleveland does get back. And the casualties are absolutely enormous because they lose 60 aircraft on the Schweinfurt and Regensburg raid. You know, out of three hundred and fifteen, it's a huge, huge amount. 
Yeah, I mean, if people want to read about that raid in particular, all those raids in particular, they, um, uh, Martin Middlebrook wrote, wrote an excellent, an excellent book about them. Yes, he did. But people are starting to realise that numbers are are diminishing very fast. They were already diminishing before the Schweinfurt Regensburg raid, but the Schweinfurt Regensburg raid really brings it to focus that that actually they're not just losing a few; they're getting slaughtered. And, and infamously, there's one replacement crewman that arrives at Fort Abbas in time for a late meal, goes to bed but gets lost over Germany the next morning. And no one ever knew his name because he'd only just arrived. So he became the man who came to dinner. Uh, and, you know, it's that kind of sort of gallows humour which is starting to take root. You know you've got a problem, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Cleveland and Egan become figures, heroes within the hundreds. Yeah, they're like they're like school heroes. They're like the captain of the, of the football yeah. team. Yeah, but they don't like the idea. <laughs> Cleveland really doesn't like the idea of this. I mean, that's more responsibility, isn't it? He doesn't want to be seen as dashing or heroic. Yeah, and, they, and so so these new crews would arrive and they'd sort of go, oh, you're Egan and, and Cleveland because, you know, I read you up in the Saturday Evening Post and they know all about them. So they're kind of like sort of famous figures. And Cleveland says, you know, their fear wasn't as great as ours and therefore was more dangerous. They feared the unknown. We feared the known. And there is this this mounting sense that 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 things are, are, are getting worse. And, and basically throughout the rest of August and September – Aker doesn't attempt any point-blank targets at all, or barely any. No, certainly nothing in the right, because they've been decimated by the Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid, and they've got to build up strength all over again. And they've also got a sort of, you know, this horrible feeling that actually what if all their, you know, all their, their pre-war planning and assumptions are, are, has been wrong, and all that assumptions from the from the combined bomber offensive and from the Aker plan and all the rest of it that he was outlining initially and in the case for daylight bombing back in January 1943. What if that's all all been mistaken? It's, it, you know, it's a horrible feeling. On the 8th of October, Buck Cleveland takes off for an attack on Bremen and doesn't return. You know, gets shot down, ends up being the, you know, three 109s, tore out the sun, knock out three engines, shredding the four and, and starting a fire in the cockpit. And, and Cleveland orders them to jump. He's the last man out, jumping only at 2,000 feet. And, you know, they spend the rest of the war as a, as a prisoner of war. The next mission is Munster, and this is the day of infamy for the 100th Bomb Group. It's Sunday, the 10th of October. It's the 100th Bomb Group's mission number 35. Pre-bright briefing, briefing, the target today, gentlemen, is Munster. And there's the red string across the map over the North Sea, over the Netherlands, to a town just over the other side of the Dutch border. And actually, it's only just in the in the Ruhr, and it's not expected to be a particularly tough fight, not least because P-47s can escort them pretty much all the way. The aim is to hit the main railway station, the main railway workers' residential areas. So a lot of the area, the railway workers that, that operate in the Ruhr area are based in residential terraces in Munster. So the idea is to kill the, is to kill the men. Is to kill the civilians, you know. None, you know. So you can have your kind of we want precision bombing and we're going to be more ethical and all the rest of it. But this is out and out getting the workers. This is the thing that people agonised over for the for two decades in the interwar years, and tried to forswear themselves from doing. And here they are essentially doing it, which is interesting because the the crews have all been they've all been r- raised on this milk that they're doing precision bombing and they're they're going to win the war clean, aren't they? And in a way, this sort of this is this is the like the the beginning, isn't it? The beginning of the, that. And after all, they've not been bombing a lot of the bombing they've done has killed enough civilians anyway, but they've tried not to. This is they're really not 
they're not trying not to here in this instance. No, and, 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 the, uh, and there's discomfort about this amongst the bomb crews, amongst the crews as well. They're not like quite sure about that. But Egan is flying that day, and he's flying with Captain John Brady in Mademoiselle Zigzig, and they take off as the lead ship at 11 minutes past 11 a.m. on that Sunday, the 10th of October, 1943. Part of this concentrated, massed effort to, to hit point-blank targets First time since the Schweinfurt Regensburg um, raid in, in August, and now it's October 1943. So 53 bombers of the 13th Combat Wing are assembled over Great Yarmouth, um, and the 100th is forming the bottom and back. Oh, Again, no. This is, Coffin this Corner. Is what, what, Coffin Corner, uh, behind the leading 95th Bomb Group. Over the North Sea, four bombers turn back. Say so you're turning back, right? Yeah. That's, you've got an engine problem. What if you turn back, you land back, and there's nothing that transpires there's nothing wrong with your aircraft? Is there an LMF thing in the, although we've talked about that, a lack of moral fiber thing? Yeah, you do get you do get in pretty big trouble, I think. You get in pretty, pretty big trouble. Okay. I don't think it's so called the, LMF. So turning back isn't done lightly, no. is what I'm saying. No, no, because, no, no, no. You know, so far in these two podcasts, I, we have made very clearly the case for turning back. <laughs> No, but I suppose if you think 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 the hundred bomb group is having this very intense period of of combat operations, you've you've survived, you know, you've survived Bremen, but you've got some damage and it hasn't quite been fixed up, and you know you suddenly realise the hydraulics aren't working or you know something. Obviously, you don't want to be going over if you've got a slightly dud dud aircraft. So you know, I, I, don't, I think that's entirely understandable. But of course, you know, one has to remember that by October, in a way that hasn't been. Gamora, the destruction of Hamburg is at the very end of July, beginning of August, nineteen forty three. By the time of the Schweinfurt Regensburg raid, you know the the air defence system hasn't been overhauled. By the beginning of October, it absolutely has been overhauled, and it's very much the same basis that the the British defence air defence system is is based the Downing system. I.e., you have observers on the ground, you have radar chains, you have um, central hubs, you have uh, you no longer have the the Himmelblatt system, which is this idea that you have you know fighter planes and night fighters operating in blocks, and, and they only operate in their particular area, which is then over overwhelmed by the bomber stream of bomber command. By this stage, you've got fighter aircraft all over the over the Reich. You've you've got plenty of early warning systems, a very sophisticated ra- radar, very sophisticated control rooms with sort of you know glass walls with lights and all the rest of it. So so the ground controllers on the down on the ground can absolutely control the battle, control where you can see where the bombers are coming. You've got listening services as well as observer observers on the ground. So you've got people tuning into to American and indeed British radio chatter and picking up their signals and working out where they are. You've got the radar, you've got the observers, you know, altogether that gives you a very good intelligence picture of the intentions of the enemy forces coming over. And as I, as I said in the last one, the point about being in a, in a large formation is yes, you might have security, but it makes it very darn obvious where you are because you, you represent a very big blot on a radar screen. Uh, and, and if you're going in a sort of, stra- you know, in a straight line towards Bremen, it's pretty obvious that that's where you're heading. So it doesn't take much to sort of second guess your movement, um, which then means from a German point of view, you're much more easy to intercept. And what happens on this particular raid of Munster, which should have been fairly okay, is that the, the Thunderbolts turn for home just on the edge of the Dutch-German border. And no sooner do they do so than the German fighters turn up again. So, you know, you might have not bothered having the fighter escort in the first place. And the bombers are just lining up on the IP, which is the initial point, the start of the of the bomb run, when out of the sun at 12 o'clock high again come 200 enemy fighters head on. And, um, you know, Brady's plane is hit. First falls out of, out of formation. Egan is overseeing the abandoning of the plane when it bursts into flames. Egan and Brady put the fort onto automatic pilot and scramble back to open the bomb bay. And they all jump. Um, Egan shot at as he drifts down, but despite that, he's by being nicked his parachute riddled he managed to make it safely 
And after shedding his shoot, heads into woods, but he's picked up and, and like his pal Cleveland, spends the rest of the war at a POW. And, you know, what the Germans are doing is they're, they're not only deploying the gallant approach of, of attacking head on, they're also focusing on one combat wing um, at a time. So that rather than going for the whole formation, they hone in on one bit and, and, and smother that and, and take them, pick them off at a, at a time. And it's an incredibly effective way. You know, in seven minutes, the 100th bomb group ceases to exist because they're flying 13 ships that day and 12 of them are shot down. And only one makes it home from Munster. And that is damaged with two engines missing. So that's kind of, you know, that's effectively 100% gone. And what is amazing is that on the, uh, on the 14th, Black Thursday, so just four days later, the 100 Bomb Group is still expected to fly on Triumphant 2 because you don't, you never fly all your ships in one, one mission, a bit like you would have left out of battle with a, a, an infantry unit. But amazingly, on that day, all of them survive because they're not in the coffin corner. You know, they're in a different part of the, you know, and, they, and, it, and the Germans haven't picked on them on that particular occasion. So they managed to manage to get to get back. But but you know, since since, since those 140 crews, uh, those sorry, those 40 crews have arrived on the 9th of June, 1943, to October. So what's that? That's four months, isn't it? In four months, they've arrived with 140 officers. Only three remain. And since the beginning, since the beginning of October, it's lost two squadron commanders, four lead crews, and three operations officers. You see, if I didn't know what was going to happen next, as it were, how on earth do you sustain this? How on earth do you justify sustaining this? Or what the hell do you do about it? This is the moment of crisis because the the fact of the matter is, by this moment, middle of October, nineteen forty three, less than one in four crew members could expect to complete twenty five missions. Such is the attrition rate. Two-thirds of crews could expect to die or be captured. 70%, 17% would be wounded. Only 14% of a crewmen that uh, arrived with the 100 Bomb Group made it to 25 missions. I don't like dem odds, is what I'm no. saying. No, it's, it's amazing. And the, and the fact remains that, that 77% of the Americans who flew with the Mighty Eight from its start back in June 1942 to June 1944, D-Day, that's two years would become casualties. So what that leaves you with is by mid-October, Acre's plan is in is being shredded. Eighth Air Force is in crisis. Point blank doesn't look like it's got a hope of ever being achieved because you can't get into the Reich without fighter escorts. The fighter escorts they do have are ineffectual because they have to turn back too soon. And you've got a massive, massive problem on your hands of which there is not, you know, there is no obvious immediate short-term solution. And the clock is ticking towards D-Day, which is still scheduled for the 1st of May, 1944. And at that point, you have to have the skies over Northwest Europe completely clear of, of the Luftwaffe. And that is a million miles away in the middle of October, 1943. And that objective in itself is a million miles away from the, the all the clever people with their good-intentioned thinking before the war. The intention of the bomber arm was to bring about a decision in a future war, but not by creating and uh, you know destroying the enemy air force, but by intervening uh, strategically against the enemy. Which, which the assumption was not by encountering an air force, but it may turn out that strategic bombing is actually the way you you deliver a strategic outcome, but not by the way you originally envisaged. Which I think is really, really really fascinating well in the next episode we're going to be looking at actually we're going to be turning our attention to the fighter force 
which is the, the contrast between the fighter force and the bomber force. It just couldn't be more stark. And we'll be looking at that, and we'll be looking at the crisis and how the US 8th Air Force starts slowly but surely to overcome that crisis. And it's just so interesting. And at the same time, also deal with its expansion that's coming, because there's a coming expansion, that this is the thing, or that the whole of this period that we're talking about, there are replacement aircraft, there are replacement crews coming in, and there's tons of stuff, just uh, this amazing permanent flow, which partly answers the question of how Acre's able to keep doing this over and over again. Anyway, we we will be back with another instalment. Episode three. We haven't made a commitment to how many it will be in the end. Um, if you want them all at once, though, rather than once as they dribble out, um, search for our channel on Apple Podcasts and subscribe with just those two easy clicks. It's ad-free and we have curated playlists of our previous episodes. So our episodes sort of shepherded like wayward sheep into different pens and you can then clip on your woolly favourite. Or, of course, you can join patreon.com slash wehaveways where you get that and a live cast so you can spy on me and Jim in our respective man caves discussing the Second World War usually on a Monday night, every other week, and very often with a glass of wine, and guests, and interaction with you, our sweet listeners. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more Mighty 8th very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.